Welcome to Grace Church's podcast. This week, we had a guest speaker join us and share a word. The following episode was recorded live during Sunday's service. So if you've been with us for the past few weeks, um, Jay's been speaking in the Old Testament about Joshua, and we've done a whole series in there. So if it's all right with you guys, I'd like to balance out, do something in the New Testament. Everyone's okay with that? Good, good, good. If we didn't, I was going to have to ask Mariana to come up here and, and do a sermon on the, the Old Testament because I did most of my preparations in the New Testament. So appreciate you guys being willing to meet me there. So um, when, when we talk about the, the Old and the New Testaments, it, it always cracks me up to hear people talk about the, the differences between them. And, and sometimes they talk about it as though the two Testaments are written about different gods, like, like different Different people wrote those two new te- the, the new and the Old Testament, and uh, typically it's 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 talked about how the God of the Old Testament is more interested in smiting people, and the God of the New Testament is more interested in passing out hugs and forgiveness. And and obviously theologically we don't agree with that. You know we think that, that God is God. He has been. He always will be. And uh, it's the same God. And someone could look at those two stories. You know, like um, we'll talk about like in the Old Testament we talk about the story of, of Korah. Which is a, it was a little rebellion amongst the Israelites. They rallied up against Moses and said that he wasn't following God. And, and God opened up the earth and swallowed up Korah and all of his followers. Like 250 people, gone. And then you look at something in the New Testament, like the woman caught in the act of adultery. Woman's brought to Jesus. They say the law says she should be stoned. And Jesus chooses to, to show grace and to, sa- to spare her, to save her life. And you look at those two stories, and you could say, you know, someone could say, well, these are very different characteristics. You know, it almost seems like two different people. And they are very different characteristics, but they're very different stories. And they require that the context of them is very different. They require different things of God in those stories. So in the story of Korah, you've got a, a blind rebellion against the leader that God's placed over Israel. They challenge Moses. They tell him he's not following God. He's not leading the people correctly. And they're doing it not prayerfully. Not with consideration of the Lord, because if they were, they would have recognized the end result of this, which is that God disagreed with them, that he sided with Moses. And when Moses called God to, to show his wrath on them, he did. And so that kind of blind rebellion and challenging of, of God can be very dangerous. In that story, unfortunately, many people lost their lives. In the story of the, the woman caught in the act of adultery, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had turned the law and, and the rules into such a cult, into such a weird how to better themselves and how to keep everyone else down. It was this weird hierarchy thing. And Jesus took the opportunity to show them that the people that the laws applied to are just as important as the rules themselves. Certainly we have to have rules and we have to have laws, but the people is what God's interested in. Those laws were created to draw people closer to God, not separate them into classes and hierarchies and groups so that one person can look better than another. So the, the two situations required very different things of God. And I think it's no different than the roles that a parent plays with a child. I've got a two-year-old. I'll just as quickly scoop him up and swat him when he breaks the rules at our house as I will scoop him up and kiss scrapes when he falls on the ground. You know, the, the two situations require different things from me. Just because I'm the disciplinary doesn't mean that I don't love him. And just because uh, I baby him doesn't mean that he can't do any wrong in my sight. Those situations require different things from me. And I think God the Father in situations, has to play those roles. He has to be the disciplinary sometimes, even if he doesn't necessarily want to be. He has to, uh, he gets to play the, the role of mercy and, and forgiveness from time to time, and, and that's the differences in, in those roles, in my opinion. So a lot of times when people talk about the New Testament and Jesus, you, you get this, like, 
hippie genre of Jesus, right? Long hair, barefoot, he's just going around forgiving people, healing people, passing out love. And, and that's true. He is. He's doing certainly. He's certainly doing all of those things. But to the people who feel like that's all Jesus is, I say to them, reread your Gospels and pay attention when the Pharisees and the Sadducees are around because Jesus is straight up brutal sometimes with those people. And I think, that the, I think the God of the Old Testament is just as loving as the God of the New Testament can be intense. And, and so we're going to look at Jesus and some of the intensity uh, uh, in the New Testament that he shows and some of the counterculturalism that he has with some of the other leaders and teachers of his era. Um, Jesus really was kind of the, the original rebel with a cause. And I love that. I love that about Jesus. I love seeing him throw down in some of those situations. There's, there's nothing that pricks the ear like a rocker like me than, than the word rebellion. You know, that sticking it to the man, breaking the mold, fighting the system, you know, 12-inch mohawks and leather jackets with studs on it. You know, I'm all about that, you know. I won't conform to this, this system, this establishment. I love that. And, and, and Jesus gets to play that role sometimes in the New Testament, and I, I really enjoy those stories. So we're going to look at some of those. Those, so people who like those genres, you got punk, rock, metal, you know, they love that not fitting into your system. I won't conform to your system. I won't fit into the establishment. They want to stand out, right? They want to be different from the crowd. They do outrageous colors with the hair. The fashion's crazy. And they want to stand out from the crowd, certainly. But they always have a group that dresses the same, which I think is really funny. I think, you know, everybody wants to be an individual, certainly. Everybody wants to be unique and, and, and special. But at the same time, we have to have a group with which we fit in. You know, you, you, all the goths paint their fingernails black. They're not picking different colors so they can all be unique. All the hipsters have similar styles and fashion. They want to stand out from the mass, but at the same time, they don't want to stand completely alone. And, and that's the same for us. You know, within the church, whether it's, it's with a fusion group or with a ministry that you're in, we want a place to belong. We want a place where we can meet people, we can get to know them, they can know us, we can build rapport. We want to know there's people we can always sit next to, always talk to when we're having a hard time. But at the same time, there are times that we're called to stand out. We're called to stick out. Jesus certainly did. He brought some crazy change into the, the Old Testament concept of Judaism, and it caused him not to fit in a lot. And... I don't feel like it caused him not to fit in because of his ignorance. I think he understood the culture that he was stepping in. I think he very intentionally chose to be different than those cultures. So we're going to talk about some of those things. Um, when, when Jesus hit the Old Testament scene, and he hit it like a Mack truck at 100 miles an hour. He was not pulling any punches. He was not apologizing to anyone. At 12 years old, he was in the temple challenging 50, 60, 70-year-old men who've been studying the Torah professionally. 12 years old, just straight out of the gate. He was ready to fight. And, and I love that about him. Um, so we're going to look at four different areas um, uh, where Jesus really didn't fit in. He didn't fit into the culture. He didn't fit into what was expected of a teacher of the era. So I had a professor in, uh, in college who uh, I won't name because I didn't ask for his permission to do this. I have no idea where he is. It's been 10 years. Um, but I had a professor in college who... Uh, he lived in Missouri his whole life. He worked for the Assemblies of God at the time, and he got the opportunity to go to a conference in California. They were going to fly him out. He was going to stay out there. He had a friend who lived in California who went to the conference several times. So he calls up his friend. He says, hey, I'm getting ready to go to this conference in a couple weeks. What's the weather like? What should I pack? Blah, blah, blah. And his friend's like, oh, it's you know, beautiful California spring. Pack light. It's warm. And he's like, okay, great. What's the, what's the dress at the conference like? He's like, do I need to bring a blazer? Do I need to bring ties? You know, things like that. And he's like, oh, no, no, just business casual. 
He's like, okay, great, appreciate it. Hangs up, packs up his stuff, he flies out to California. He gets there, he gets to his hotel, dresses up for the conference the first night. He's got like loafers and slacks and a button-up, you know, business casual. And he goes into the conference, and when he gets there, it's full of shorts and flip-flops. Like, no one is wearing long pants. He sticks out like a store thumb. And to the point that he thought he was in the wrong place at first. He started asking around, like, hey, is, is this the conference? And they're like, yeah, yeah, you're in the right place. So he finds his friend, who's also wearing shorts and flip-flops, and he's like, dude, what the heck? You told me business casual. And he's like, this is business casual in California. And, you know, obviously their perceptions of it were very different. So my professor was stepping in in ignorance. He was sticking out out of ignorance because he didn't realize his business casual and his friend's business casual were very different. But in Jesus' case, he's stepping out very intentionally. He understands the culture that he's in. He knows what he's stepping into. But he chooses to do things very different than some of the religious leaders of the era because he wants to bring about that change. He wants to be that change pioneer. And a lot of times that gets him some hate. And that's going to happen. When you try to usher in change, you're always going to find resistance for it. Because, again, we like to fit in. We like to belong. We like to leave things as they are. And sometimes that's going to cause some strife. So the first one that I want to read from is in Luke chapter 7. Uh, We're going to read from 44 to 47. So this is a story where Jesus is having dinner at a Pharisee's house, and um, a woman comes in, and it's it's the woman who washes his feet. So essentially, um, if you've never seen, like, the the way they sat around tables then. So they would, they would sit on the floor, they would lean on their left hand, and they'd have their feet kind of like tucked up behind them. So the feet would be directly behind them. And so this woman just came up behind him as he's at the table, reclined, and she starts washing his feet. It would be directly behind him. And um, so we'll pick it up in, in, in verse 44. So, oh, I'm sorry. So the, the, and essentially what had happened was Simon, the person who invited him to his house to eat, had made either a comment to someone or had, a, had the thought of, if he was a real prophet, he would know who this woman is and he would not let her touch him. And he says to Simon uh, in, in verse 44, Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. So right away, culturally, we see some issues. Um, in the era, there, like I said, there was this social hierarchy where you didn't associate with people below your hierarchy. Otherwise, they would drag you down to it. You wouldn't associate with people of questionable moral uh, integrity because that would bear the risk of bringing you down on the social chain. And Jesus vehemently chooses not to do that. He's constantly hanging out with people that the Pharisees and the Sadducees would not view as good company for a rabbi, for a teacher. And so we see that straight away. But then he uses this woman as an example. And so uh, the, uh, some of the verses say uh, a woman of the city, a, a woman known to the city. You know, our best guess is she's probably a known prostitute in the area. Obviously, the, the Pharisee who invited Jesus over was aware of her. He, he recognized her. And but Jesus uses this woman, this, this potentially this prostitute, this sinner, to show an example to Simon. He says, you know, you didn't wash my feet when I came in, or even give me water to wash my own feet, but she's washed my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil whenever I came in, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. You didn't, do, you didn't greet me with a kiss, which would have been traditional for, for men of prominence in, in the culture, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. This is the better example. And she uses this woman to do that, and I, it would have appalled someone like a rabbi, someone like Simon. And so right away we see Jesus um, 
shoving away counterculture and, and digging into what his father would really want, um, the line I have in the bulletin is, a sinner does for Jesus what the host has not offered. And, and you get to see that right away. The second one that we're going to read is in Luke uh, 15, verse 20. And this is the parable of the, um, the, parable of the, son, of the prodigal son. And so essentially, if you, if you don't know the parable, um, a son asks his father for his inheritance, says, you're dead to me, all I want is the money, let me have it, let me get out of here. He leaves with all his money, uh, blows it on wine and women, and has lots of money, lots of parties, lots of friends, and when the money and the parties run out, the friends run out too. Finds himself in a really bad place, thinks he's going to starve to death, he decides he's going to try to go home and beg his way back into his dad's house just so he can survive. So in an honor-shame culture, to do something like this to your father, which would be someone of, of great respect and of great prominence, it would be an unbelievable shame to the family that you had done this. And if you, it had been known that you had done this to you know, others in the culture or others in the group, it, it would have been a huge shame to the father and the family as a whole. They probably would have just shunned the son. They probably would have said, you know, we don't have a son. He's dead to us. And, and of course, the rabbis would have been privy to that information, But when Jesus tells the story, um, in verse 20 he says, um, He, meaning the son, arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Not only does the father not completely disregard this son, but it shows that he's watching for him. He's actively looking for him and hoping that he will come back, which the rabbis wouldn't have agreed with at all. You know, someone like this would have been shunned because of an honor-shame society. And then he says, While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. So again, a cultural thing that, that doesn't make a ton of sense to us because the attire has changed, but running was a really big deal in the, in the Old Testament. So they would wear robes down low, down past their ankles or to their ankles, and obviously running, you wouldn't be able to get your gait correct with your robes. So in order to run, you'd have to grab the edges of your robes and pull them up, at least up to the point of your knees, so that you could get a run in. And men of prominence did not do this. They would not run. They would not expose their legs. It would be a a somewhat shameful thing. And in the case of an emergency, it would be excusable. But outside of an emergency, it would not be done. It would be considered something. It would be like someone in a a three-piece suit sprinting down the road. You know, it's just not something that you would see. it, It would be weird to them. And the thing I love about this one is, in this group that Jesus is speaking to, you have both um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and you have people of the town who, you know, the Pharisees and Sadducees would have looked down on. They were lesser people. And Jesus uses this story to speak to both of them right away, which I love. So he speaks to the, the sinners, the lesser people, in talking about the son. This son still has value. The father sees value in this son, even though he shamed the family. And, and he's saying to them, you have value too. I don't want to disregard these people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees would because Jesus saw the value in everyone. But in addition, he talks to the Pharisees and he says, you know, you would have had this knee-jerk reaction to this story, but look what my father would rather. You know, when, when one of these turns back to God and comes back, God isn't ashamed of them for what they've done. He's just thrilled that, he's there, that they're there. And so he gets to speak to both groups um, very strongly. So the line I have in the thing is, uh, a father values his son even after he shamed the family. So let's do an example. Let's talk about um, Mosaic Law and some of the rules that the Pharisees like to play with. So they took the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, and they broke it down bit by bit, and they pulled out every single command from it. Who wants to guess how many? If you know, don't cheat. If you, don't, if you know, just hold out. How many? How many do you think? Five books of the Bible. How many guess? How many do you think? Commands. 
It's interactive, I'm not kidding. Little low. Little high. 613. 613. There's a list if you want to Google it. It's not riveting. And they broke down every single command, every single rule, one by one by one by one by one. They figured them all out. And they, these people prided themselves in following all of these rules, every one of them. For the common man, it probably wasn't even possible because like, certain things wouldn't even be possible if you were of a certain financial means and things like that. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they loved to attain every single one of these rules. These guys were like legal nerds. And so what these legal nerds did was they took this, this 613 pieces and they broke them out even further and made like specific examples of little things and they expanded it out further. So let's take one, for example. We'll take um, working on the Sabbath. Everyone knows that one. No work on the Sabbath. Relax on the Sabbath. Don't go to work. Don't do your chores, things like that. You should have a day of rest just like God rested on the, sixth, on the seventh day. Um, so the Pharisees identified 39 activities that would be considered work. They're things like plowing, lighting a fire, baking, um, weaving or sewing or, or making garment. And so all of these things weren't allowed, these 39 activities. But then... The legal nerds with the exacto knives bring it down even further, and they, they say that, well, these aren't really activities so much as categories of activity. So, for instance, we'll take plowing as an example. Um, you're not allowed to plow a field. Definition of a plowing a field, bettering the land for the purpose of agriculture. You say, okay, that makes sense. You know, not just plowing, but also watering, planting, harvesting, things like that. Sure, I get that. That makes sense. So an example of, of a violation of this would be if one were to have a chair on loose soil and were to drag it, it might create in the soil grooves. If one were to drop something into the dirt, it might make a small hole or a puncture in the ground. If water or wind, in theory, brought a seed to the rose or the puncture, what you had done to the earth might protect it from the elements and help it to grow, in which case you would have bettered the soil and you would have sinned on the Sabbath. I can hear your eyes rolling. We'll do another example. Um, uh, Lighting a fire. So lighting a fire, definition for cooking or for the purpose of lighting an area. Makes sense. You know, have your fires ahead of time. They did. They did a lot of preparations going into Sabbath so they didn't have to do certain things. They made their food. They had all their stuff laid out ahead of time. So in some modern conservative circles, lighting a fire for the purpose of light might be as simple as flipping a light switch. Work. Sin. Watch me up here just sinning. It's ridiculous. It's outrageous. And, and this is what happened with the, the ideas that God gave the Jews. He gave them these rules, remember, to try to better them, to try to bring them closer to God and closer to one another. And what these elitist people did was they used them to subdue the people, to put themselves higher up on pedestals and to make lives harder for the people around them. And this is why Jesus had to bring change to this culture. This is why when he stepped into the role as teacher, he had to do things differently because he had to show them that while maybe they started out with good intentions, I won't say they didn't, I won't say they started out with the plan of doing this, but certainly this is where it ended up. And it ended up about shaming people, about putting yourself on a higher pedestal than the people around you, and it was not at all what, what it was intended for. So let's do some, let's do some more examples. Um, we've got Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Uh, 
So this is, um, so this is an example of, of working on the Sabbath. So again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Again, healing was considered work, something you wouldn't be allowed to do on the Sabbath. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Not a trick question. Not a, not a difficult question. But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their hearts, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how they could destroy him. They were so mad that he had healed somebody that they left that healing and said, we got to kill this guy. He's helping people out on Sunday. I mean, how absurd is that? Right? I mean, the, the, again, this is the culture these people had been born into. This is what they knew. And, and it's so unfortunate that that's where it had come. But you know, I like the Matthew version, too. I, I liked the, the way the, the Mark version was written out a little bit better. But one of the lines that's in the Matthew version, it says, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. In, in a livestock society, you know, if you're a farmer, if it's Sunday morning and you've got a cow stuck in a rut or something, you've got to go get it out. It's just the way it is. It's not ideal, but it's got to happen. It's your livestock. It's your livelihood. And they would be willing to do that. They'd be willing to excuse that. But to heal on the Sabbath, heaven forbid, we've got to kill this guy because he's healing people on the Sabbath. And how unfortunate that is. They saw so little value in the people around them that they weren't willing to do something like heal someone on the Sabbath. Last example we'll have, Matthew 21, 28 through 32. This is one of my favorite ones, and I think it encompasses the, the feeling of this sermon the best of any of them. So essentially, he's talking to a group of Pharisees and Sadducees, and they're talking about John the Baptist. So John the Baptist was a wild card. He was out there, man. Like, he was this wild man out in the wilderness. He's got camel hair clothes. He's got this big belt. He's eating locusts and honey and just, like, yelling at people in the wilderness. Like, he's out there. And I get that, right? As the, the, the religious leaders of the day were like, oh, we like some of the stuff he's saying, but I'm not exactly sure we want to endorse this guy just yet. Like, you don't know. He might just tip over and go into the crazy realm. And so they were a little, they were a little unsure about, about John the Baptist. And... I get that. I'm, I'm totally good with that. Um, but this is, what, this is what he says in, in this verse, starting in verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, the son changed his mind and went. The father then went to his other son and said the same. He got the answer, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? Pharisees and Sadducees say, well, the first. And Jesus says, yes. Jesus says to them, but truly I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes are going into the kingdom of heaven before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed. And even when you saw it for yourselves, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Tax collectors and prostitutes. This was human garbage. These were nobodies to the Pharisees. They wouldn't look at these people, much less help them. Jesus says, they're in line ahead of you, going into heaven, and they've got better seats. Because these people had forgotten that the laws were for the people. They weren't for making themselves look better. They were about taking care of us and us getting closer to God through them. In the eyes of God, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are better off than you. 
And, and it's understandable in, in, in some of these, when you see some of this from their cultural perspective, why the Sadducees and the Pharisees hated Jesus so much and why they were so opposed to what he was doing. This is not a hippie Jesus. This is not a person who's interested in shying away. This guy's dropping microphones all over the Middle East. And, and I love that. I love that he's willing to go toe-to-toe with these religious leaders. And, and he's not silent about his convictions. He's willing to step out and say, this is what we should be doing. This is the truth. This is the reality of it. And I believe that's who he's called us to be. He wants us to be people that don't necessarily fit in. He didn't fit in, and he knew he wouldn't. He stepped into a culture that he knew wasn't working properly, and he tried to bring about change. He knew there would be times that he would not fit in. Now, there were times that he was a rock star. He'd show up at a town during the week, and he would heal a bunch of people, and he would preach a bunch of messages, and everyone would love it, and it was awesome. And then there were other times when the Pharisees and the Sadducees got around, and they started nitpicking little things here and there that he was doing and saying, and that's when he really started getting himself in trouble, and he really started challenging these people. In... uh, in John 15, 18, and 19, Jesus essentially sums it up, and he lays it out for us in black and white. Starting in verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He told us straight up, you're not going to fit in sometimes. He said, you will sometimes. You'll have friends. You'll be happy at times. But there'll be other times when the world's ways will not be your ways. And you simply won't be able to participate with them if you're going to follow your beliefs and convictions. And that's what Jesus did when those situations come up. When it came time to heal the man with the withered hand in the temple, Jesus said, I refuse to conform to the world that you live in. I'm healing this man because I say it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So, and I think the reason this is we have to recognize ourselves as more than just human, right? There's more to our lives than just earth. We as Christians view our lives as, as greatly extended beyond our short stay at earth, right? We have a heavenly inheritance that we're going to step into at some point, and that's going to be the majority of our lives. We're temporary here. And when you look at, when you look at it like that, you see that not necessarily clicking here is okay, You don't have to necessarily fit here. Jesus tells us we're not going to fit here. There's going to be times that the world hates you because I've called you out of the world. You're not a part of them. Did you have a friend in high school that just didn't quite find their stride? They couldn't quite tell what extracurriculars they could do. They couldn't quite figure out how to talk to the opposite gender. They couldn't quite. They were just a little awkward, and, and you loved them. They were good, but they just hadn't quite figured themselves out yet. And then they hit college, and they just click. They find their niche, they find their groove, they figure out how to talk to guys or girls, and they they really start to get things, you know, they they just seem better. They seem happier that way. That's us when it comes to earth and heaven. We don't exactly fit here. We will certainly have friends. We will certainly have fun. But there will be times when, because of our beliefs and our convictions, we can't conform to the world around us. And that's what Jesus told us with these stories. And he lived it. He was willing to do that with life and limb. So we have that heavenly inheritance that we expect one day. The line in the, in the bulletin is, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated him first. So it, sometimes he has very strong words for the Pharisees. But I want to preface that with saying that those weren't super common. Those were somewhat far between. And I think that's important because I don't think we necessarily have to take an antagonistic step towards the, towards the world. A lot of times Jesus was doing things very quietly. Um, in one of the stories, he heals a leper 
which is a, a big religious no-no. It was unclean. He, he touched the leper, which leprosy is contagious. He's taking his own life into his hands at that point. But at the end of it, he says, go and show yourself to the priest to make the necessary sacrifices, but tell no one. And another time he heals, uh, he brings a, a girl back to, back to life. There's mourners, there's all kinds of people around the house, family members. And when Jesus gets there, he sends all of them out. And he only takes the parents, Peter, James, and John, five people. There's nothing that the rabbis and the Pharisees liked more than to do everything on a stage. They love to be greeted in the marketplace and called rabbi. They love to wear their prayer tassels long so that people saw them. Whenever they would fast, they would contort their faces and put ash on their foreheads so people knew. It was all about me. And Jesus didn't do those things. And I think just because Jesus was willing to take this kind of stance with the Pharisees doesn't necessarily mean we have to take that kind of stance every time. More often than not, Jesus did things very quietly and very calmly, and the difference in him was so apparent that people couldn't help but be drawn to that. He didn't need a megaphone. He didn't need a sign. He didn't need to yell at people on street corners. Just living his life with his convictions and his beliefs brought people to him by the masses. And I think the same is true for us. So I feel like the challenge that God gives us in all of this is, is... to be willing to not fit in. The three ways that I see Jesus not fitting in in these stories is he doesn't fit in in a bold way. He's willing to go toe-to-toe. He's willing to say that this is not what I believe and this is not what I'm going to do. I don't necessarily have to make a big show about it. I don't have to be the center of attention while I do it, but at the same time, I'm, I'm not going to stray away from it for fear of stepping on some toes. I'm going to do what I believe is right in my heart. We see him doing it courageously. No matter what the company is, no matter what the situation is, Jesus is willing to stick to his, convic- to his convictions. Now, I said courageous, and if you heard obnoxious, you heard wrong. We've gotten a bad name about ourselves as Christians for beating people over the head with what we believe, and that's not what Jesus is doing here. Certainly, he's being a little antagonistic with some of the people who are challenging him, but he's not being a jerk about it. He, if you're at Wendy's and you're getting ready to pray over your meal Don't think twice about it because there's a family sitting across from you. Say your prayer because that's your conviction. At the same time, don't stand up and yell at them for not praying over theirs. That's the difference. Be willing to do what you know is right, but don't be willing to hurt others in in the pursuit of it. That's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were doing with what they saw. And the last thing I see is very intentional choices. He went out very intentionally. 100% 100% I believe, about, I believe in the voice of the Holy Spirit in hearing what, what the Holy Spirit says to you and stepping out in faith when you hear that voice. At the same time, I believe in the intentionality of saying, this is who I am, this is what I believe, and I will not waver from it. Regardless of where I am, regardless of who I'm with, regardless of whether or not my mother-in-law is going to like it, these are, this is who I am, and I'm choosing this intentionally. I don't have to wait for the voice of the Holy Spirit on this one because I've already decided So I believe that Jesus does that very intentionally. I think we need to have the kind of resolution that Jesus had in our hearts that that these convictions will not waver in us. So I went looking for a person that I thought fit this this bill. And it's not necessarily a Christian person, uh, but it's an interesting person that I think had great principles, and and it was very interesting to me. So this is, okay, This, this woman's Italian. I'm not. So I'm going to say her name as best I can repeat Google reading it to me. If you speak Italian, I'm sorry. I don't. Okay? Her name is Licia Ranzulli. It's probably wrong. She is a European Union representative from Italy. 
okay? And she has a history in nursing. She graduated from college with a psychology major. And her role in the EU has been a lot about uh, fighting for human rights, fighting for the equality of women, and stopping the spreading of major disease in, in, in the world. Those are some, some of the big pieces that she's really, really interested in. This is her daughter, Vittoria. Vittoria is 44 days old in this picture. Licha realized that her job was too important to abandon it. Both of them. This is her sitting in an EU meeting, getting ready to cast her vote for a vote that was coming up that she knew her vote was integral in getting it to pass. Her role as a representative for Italy and through the EU was too important to abandon. But her role as mom to Vittoria was too important to abandon too. And just because she was presented with a situation that hadn't happened before, she wasn't willing to step away from either of those roles. She was willing to do something that hadn't been done because that's what the situation required. That was her conviction. She had to be there for Italy. She had to be there for Italy. She had to be there for Vittoria. So she chose to do both. And I love seeing examples like this in the world that just because it doesn't seem like it's been done before, just because it doesn't seem to fit in the world around you, doesn't mean it can't be done. And doesn't mean it can't be inspiring. Jesus told us in this story in John, you will not fit in. There will be times that the world will hate you. Period. There will be times that you have fun. There will be times that, that you're happy, that you, that you feel like you fit in and you have your group. But there will be times that will challenge you, that will state in opposition to your convictions and your beliefs. And you will have to choose at that moment whether or not you're serious about them. The example that Jesus set for us was that he was very serious about them. Boldly, courageously, and intentionally, he chose those convictions. Regardless of the company, regardless of the situation, regardless of who it upset in fancy clothes and nice chairs, he chose to say it anyway. And I love that about Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, I come to you in prayer right now. And I just thank you for, for the men and women in this room, God. I thank you for who you are in our lives. I thank you for the family that this church has. And, and I just ask that, that you would make this challenge very real to us, God. That we could try to live a similar example to what Jesus lived. That we would step out in faith. That we would be willing to believe in our convictions. We would be willing to say that no matter what happens, this is who I am and this is what I'm going to do. Even if it means hurting some feelings sometimes. I pray that the relationship I have with that person will, will gloss over that. I thank you for this example in Christ's life. I thank you that your son was willing to do what you've asked us to do. He did it first. He did it boldly, he did it courageously, and he did it intentionally. And I pray that we can do the same, God. That we walk out of this building, we see those opportunities. To stand in opposition of the world. You told us we're not of the world, so we can't possibly fit into it. There will be times that the world hates us. And we accept that, God. We thank you for that. We just ask that you would give us that courage, that boldness, God, that when those opportunities arise, we can stick to our guns, we can be like Christ, and we can choose to live intentionally. I thank you for everyone in this room, God, and I ask that you just bless them as they go out this week, Lord. I pray that we would find these opportunities in our own lives and that we can be bold in them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope that this episode made a difference in your life. If you would like more information on giving your life to Jesus, visit us on the web at grace417.com.